looking at Psalm 91 today, I'm not necessarily going to be looking all verse by verse. But I think as we look at the psalm, as we see the times of troubles and afflictions and difficulty, what we get from Psalm 91 is three lessons from the psalm for our times of of trouble. And remember, like I said, our main point of this psalm is to encourage us to trust in God. Okay, is to encourage us to trust in God. And I want to deal with the question that if you look at Psalms 91, if you look at Psalms 91, if you look at Psalms 91, uh, it is not to say that our life as a Christian is all easy. There'll be no trials, no troubles, everything. You will not even die. That's not what I think the psalm is teaching. I think as you see in a greater context, I think there's something else deeper going on that actually makes us say, I love you, God. And specifically, I love you, Jesus. Okay? So these are the three points of your taking notes from home today. Okay? These are three lessons from the psalm for our times of trouble. Number one, we need to trust that God can help us. We need to trust that God can help us. What I mean by that point is that God has a capability. He has the attribute. He has a character that can help us. So point number one is trust that God can help us. Okay? Is going to be our first point. Trust that God can help us. Trust that God can help us. That's point number one if you're taking notes. Uh, Point number two we see is, point number two that we see is uh, do not test the Lord, okay? Point number two is do not test the Lord. That's the second lesson we're going to learn from this. Do not test the Lord. And thirdly, worship Christ, whom this psalm is talking about. Okay? Um, worship Christ, whom this psalm is talking about. Okay? Uh, that's what we're going to be uh, looking at for today. Okay? Okay? Um, so, these are the three points. Let me repeat again. There's three points. Number one is trust that God can help us. Number two, do not test the Lord. And number three, worship Christ, whom this psalm is talking about. Okay? Um, The first thing we need to note is, uh, the first thing is, our main lesson is we need to trust in God. And one of the reasons why we can trust in God in our trials is we need to trust that God can help us. Okay? Uh, When you look at the psalm, there's actually some extraordinary statements of what God is able, capable to do. In fact, it begins, we see the clear purpose of this psalm is to, for us to find shelter in the Almighty. Because in verses 1, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the uh, Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It's an image that we're so deep in, in our relationship with God that we find shelter in Him. But we're also in the shadow of the Almighty. We're deep within God, abiding in Him, so to speak, if you will. Uh, in, in verses 1 and 2, in establishing our first point, trust that God can help us. If you notice in verses 1 and 2, there's different titles mentioned of God. Okay, There's different divine titles mentioned. And I think why it's giving all this uh, listing of different attributes or titles of God is to emphasize that, this, yes, God is a God. He's, he's real. And because of the biblical description of who God is, you can trust God in times of trouble. That you can trust God in times of trouble is our main point. Let me read again verses 1 and 2 to establish just by looking at the titles of God. It established our first point that we can trust God, trust that God can help us in times of trouble. Verse 1 and 2 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will sing to the Lord. My 
uh, refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Looking at this, notice the first divine title that's mentioned in verses 1. The first line is that he's called the Most High. In Hebrew, the word is Elion. And I think it's focusing on his sovereignty. That is his majesty over the whole world. Okay, That he's, when we think of the skies above us, it's higher than us. The mountains are higher than us. And yet above all of that, it is God. It is God who is the Most High who's the most transcendent, who's above everything else, and thus stressing His divine sovereignty, that He's ruler and that He's in control. Related to this, somewhat synonymous to this, is if you look in verses 1, you'll see in the second line, uh, in Hebrew poetry, it's not so much rhyme with every line. Oftentimes, it's to say, what is the relationship? Is the first line antithetical, that is, it's opposite, or is it synonymous? And you see in verses 1, you see the two lines in Hebrew poetry here, in this specific verse, is emphasizing synonymous idea. That is, it's trying to reinforce, it's trying to repeat the concept so that we could understand and we could take this home and say, this is what's important. If the first line says, uh, in emphasizing God's divine title, is that He's most high and therefore we can dwell in Him, the second line has the same synonymous idea because now it calls God with the divine title Almighty. The divine title Almighty. Some of you guys, this Hebrew word might be more familiar for some of us than perhaps even the first one, where it's Elion. The second, the, the second title here, in the uh, second line of verse 1, is the Almighty. Literally in Hebrew, in terms of pronunciation, is El Shaddai, or Shaddai. We often think of God as El Shaddai, which stress that God is all-powerful. That is stressing God's omnipotence, that He's all-powerful. Again, the first and second line, they're quite synonymous. God being sovereign or majestic or above and transcend above everything. But then we also see here in verses, uh, the second line, it emphasizes here. Second line, it emphasizes here that God is all powerful. Okay, is why, as it says here, we could abide in Him. Abide and dwelling are two verbs very similar. The idea that we live with God and we're connected with God. If you guys remember, even a few weeks ago when we were able to meet, we even gone over the doctrine of union with Christ. And that's not a New Testament concept, that our union or connection with God is way back in the Old Testament concept. Um, I'm a firm believer, the more I read the New Testament, the best way to understand the New Testament is to look back to the Old Testament, which is often where the seed idea comes from. It's things such as union with God and union with Christ. So in light of these uh, title, notice again in the second uh, line, it doesn't just stop. In second, uh, uh, the second verse, it says, I will say to the Lord. Uh, if you look at your English Bible, you'll notice the word Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. And what is this trying to do here? What is this trying to do in this context with this verse? Is it's actually trying to show us is actually trying to show us that in Hebrew, the word is Yahweh, uh, which I believe is God's personal name. It's God's personal name. Um, and it goes back to the story of Moses. If you remember him in the burning bush, in the burning bush, uh, Moses asked, who are you? When I go back to my people, to Hebrews, and I say, God has sent me, they're going to ask, who are you? And he just says, I am who I am. And the Hebrew uh, of that is actually Yahweh, which later became God's personal name. Yahweh then, therefore, in using this, represents uh, God as a covenant-keeping God. He's a personal God. Okay, He's a personal God. He's a God whom you can know. Remember, uh, name is very important in the Hebrews, right, uh, for the Jews. Whenever they have a massive conversion, 
You think of saw, he became what? Paw, okay? You think of name having significance. Names are, are even things that, uh, especially in the Hebrew culture, if you know someone's name, even today, when you know someone's name, there's a sense it's personal. Just like the same thing, if you were to go eat at a restaurant or groceries, what I like to do evangelistically sometimes, especially a place that you go often, let's just say I go to my neighborhood um, Italian uh, market, eventually after a while, I want to know the cashier's name, right? To be personal, to be uh, winsome for Christ. And also just to be a connecting, just a human person made in the image of God. So same way when you know God's name, when God knows your name, that's why in Revelation, it says that later on, Christ will have a name no one knows and He'll reveal it to the saints. You see, now we know God's personal name, which emphasizes in using Yahweh. We already see God has called Himself Most High as a title in this verse, in the psalm. Uh, uh, he is called the Almighty. Now Yahweh emphasizes that He's a faithful God. He's a covenant-keeping God. And He's a personal God that we can have relations with also as well. And then finally you see God. Simply stated, my God. Emphasizing that He, His word here is Elohim. Is emphasize the fact that hey, he's, he's the Almighty One. He's the one that's our creator. Often used, in, if you look in Genesis 1, when it talks about creation, it uses this term. He's the one that all of who He is in His essence, He is fully God. And therefore, in verses 2, this is whom I trust. So we should trust in God in light of just the first two verses, emphasizing the divine titles, which emphasize who He is. Because of who He is, He's someone that we can trust in our time of help. I think the second way this psalm teaches us that trust that God can help us is when you look at the psalm, there's actually a lot of incredible description showing how God can help us. There's a lot of uh, incredible description. And I want to even later on as we clarify even more that this is not necessarily promised that every single time God is going to be doing this, okay? This, you should not read the psalm and say, you will never die. You'll never get sick. I don't think that's the point of the psalm. We'll talk more about this when we get to point number two about do not test the Lord. But here I think we see that one of the reasons why I could trust in God is that God has the capability of helping us in these situations. A God that has ability capability of helping us in this situation. Look at these astounding ways God could help us. If you look with me in verses 3. If you look with me in verses 3, okay. Uh, this is what verse 3 says. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. So God is saying here um, that God is able to what? Uh, is able to deliver us from snares of the trapper. That is someone going out there. Just like you picture an animal, there's someone trying to set up traps to uh, hunt it down. God could deliver us uh, from someone that's going out uh, against us, okay? He has that capability. And perhaps one of the reasons why this psalm is so searched, I could imagine right now, if, if there's statistics on BibleGateway.com, Psalm 91 is probably searched quite a bit, okay? Uh, the other reason probably so searched is because if you look at verses 3, the second line, it says, And from deadly pestilence, uh, okay? God could rescue us from plagues. From, from sickness, from, from illness, and yes, even from viruses also as well, okay? Even from viruses also as well. If you look with me also as well, you don't only see this verse as uh, showing only in verse 3 how God can help us. There's further description found in verses 7, okay? Uh, verses 7. If you look with me in verses 7, uh, if you look with me in verses 7, this is what it says. A thousand may fall at your side, and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you, okay? This is an incredible scene. Now the imagery switched from a medical context 
from a, a hunting context to now in a military context where a thousand soldiers could fall at your side and even tens of thousands at your right hand, that is your preferred hand, even your allies, even those that are your friends, even fellow soldiers, even tens of thousands could die. But God has the capability of protecting you. So again, one of the reasons why I can trust in God is God is a God that is capable. Okay. Now, very clearly, I want to say this: this is not promising every time it'll happen, but here it shows that God is capable. Okay. We'll talk more about uh, the whole thing later on about uh, some of the difficulties with that in point number two and point number three. Okay. But here we, at the, at the very least, I sh- want to show you that God is sovereign, that God is capable of helping us. And has God ever delivered in certain contexts? Yes. There are certain contexts where people have been rescued from pestilence. I think even the story, for instance, of Martin Luther, uh, four, uh, f- about five, over 500 years ago, uh, Europe had a worse plague than coronavirus. There was a black wet plague, okay, um, where lots more people died. And Martin Luther made a decision not to leave Germany, not to leave the city. Everyone was leaving the city to go out of the countryside. For health, and he realized there's people dying. Okay. By the way, the term hospital. You guys know how the term hospital originate. Um, there was originally back in the early church medieval age. There were people that were called hospitalmen, and they were not hosp- what you think of hospital today. They were guys that were helping travelers going to visit Jerusalem. They were armed with swords, and also when people were sick, they would take care of them. So the idea of Christians helping, in terms of other people in the most dire c- circumstance, has a rich uh, tradition. Okay. Uh, and it's a rich history. So here we see God has protected even Martin Luther. Even that time when everyone was dying, he, had, he tried to social distance himself, so to speak, avoiding sickness. But at the same time also as well, when people were need to be met, he did went to minister to them on their deathbeds, preach to them. And also as well, even ran church in the city, even as the church was decimating, with people leaving and people also as well that were dying and passing away. So God protects in those instances. He's able, capable of protecting that. Look with me also in verses 10. It says, No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Again, this is one of the reasons emphasizing God, why people love the psalm so much, is God is able to protect us from evil, specifically even evil personified in individuals and people out there to hurt people. And also verses 10, Nor will any plague come near your tent. Okay? Uh, with that, if you guys could also look with me in verses 12, they will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Okay, remember this verse, we're going to come back to this when we look at point number two and point number three. But here's another incredible thing that God could protect you from enemies that your feet would not even they would not be able to drop you even on the stone, also, as well. Okay. That God has the capability of, of doing things this way. Then look at with me in verses 14. I love this. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. Now this is God speaking, okay? In the first person. I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has made known my name. Okay? Uh, here we see God is love. And by the way, even the Old Testament, the idea of God is love, is, is rooted in the Old Testament. I've actually done a word study, word count. Uh, I think the t- verb love actually appears more in the Old Testament than even the New Testament, okay? Um, I think it's even found early on, okay? So the idea is that New Testament has a new idea. It's more well-developed. It's more developed in the sense um, it's crystallized more clearly. But here we see there's even the idea also as well that God does have the capacity to love and is able to deliver. 
And it says here, set him on high because he's known my name. And this is the imagery that we have. I think maybe we don't appreciate as much, but in a military context, and I think Psalm, the way to understand this is Psalm is a Davidic covenant. Okay. There's some Psalm, if you read it, if you think it's about you, then I think you're doing it wrong. Okay. This Psalm is deeper than that. It's about Jesus Christ. But we have to be very careful, paying attention. When is it referring to us? When is it referring to God? When is it referring to Israel? Which some of the things are different, the promise to Israel than for us today. And when is it for all believers? And when is it about the Messiah? But here you see, um, in light of this, I think they'll appreciate more in the context of a king. Like to have palaces on a hilltop. Militarily, people like to have on the hilltop. I remember, for instance, uh, Ben Chung for his bachelor party. When we were doing paintball, you guys remember? There was, I think, three of you guys were on, on top. And all of us, Anthony and I and everyone else, were all trying to take the hill, right? Um, who has the advantage uh, in terms of football or even military? The guys on top. Unless they're skylining and we have something that shoots you far away, okay? But in light of this, you see that in verses 10, uh, uh, correction, verses 14, setting you securely on high, having the high ground for protection. So incredible promises of God's capability of helping us. So number one as application, trust that God can help us. Do you believe God and His attributes? Um, I think there's a dip, but God doesn't necessarily always have to deliver us the way we think He should, okay? According to our plan. Sometimes there's reason for us to suffer. But the least when you are, you know, it's very different to say, your will be done, God, versus uh, the idea of saying, oh, you know what? I don't believe God will help me. I believe there's a God, but I don't believe that He has a capability. That's totally different. That one is unbelief, and one is belief, and true belief is trusting even in God's will and according to God's plan. But here at the very least, as application, do you believe in God's attributes? As we look through this, I I think we must ask ourselves a question. Which one of these verses that we struggle to believe that God is capable of doing? Again, let's make that very caveat point clear, the nuance, is God is capable of doing all these things, but that doesn't mean every single time He's going to carry out these actions in this particular way in your life, okay? But here, looking at this, do we struggle to believe that God is capable of which one? And then if you do, looking at even those verses we looked at earlier, verses uh, 4, for instance, verses 7, verses uh, um, 11, verses 14, ask yourselves this question. Which one of these do you struggle with? And take it to God and say, Lord God, give me the faith to be able to believe in His attribute. And I think the best way to believe and trust in God having His capability is not just only look in your own life. By the way, if you only look at your own life, our life is too much of a finite experience. Every one of us don't have all the life experience of everything, right? So it's important to look at Scripture in a bigger picture of totality of history to see, hey, in the Scripture, do we see God displaying the capability of that to foster, to cultivate within our hearts the love for God and loving, believing that He has capability of trusting this. By the way, as application, even right now, I think in general, I think... Um, you guys know I love history, but I'm not doing this as a hobby horse, okay? Uh, I love science. There's a place for that. Uh, and all the other disciplines and all that. But I think one of the good things about learning history is sometimes you have to take a bigger picture of not just looking at our own finite life and our own limited scroll when we understand and have the bigger perspective of what God is capable of doing. Uh, recently, I was even talking to Jin. Uh, recently, I just finished not too long ago. I know I shared this last week. Um, finishing a book about um, the 13 days in 1961 with the Cuban Missile Crisis where literally three different times even people they didn't fully understand the, the politician three different times how the war almost came to an end okay 
And I think that gives me perspective even as we go through this, as even people struggle with the virus, realize, hey, this is not the first time man has gone through something. One of the things, even for homeschooling, we're going to do a special lesson uh, of that also with my daughters, is going over the Great Depression, okay? Uh, I'm going through this and realizing, wow, sometimes the perspective, realizing, wow, you know what? Um, our forefathers, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in the U.S., had a harder time than us in, in the trials they face with scarcity even much more. I mean, we could have scarcity. There might not be enough toilet paper in Costco, but we could still, what, order out, right? And even yesterday, I was smelling my neighbor's backyard. Man, these guys were barbecuing, right? We, I mean, we live in a day and age of, of blessing, okay? Where we could say, oh, man, there's not enough food, and then complain that everyone's hoarding. Then we could go ahead and buy what? I even saw one of my friends on Facebook, one of Jen and I, our mutual friend, one of the Marines, even showed, hey, at the grocery stores, there's nothing left but lobsters. And I'm thinking, wow, lobsters? You kidding me? I love lobsters, okay? So sometimes the perspective of looking at history is we get a bigger picture to realize, hey, put in perspective our suffering. We need to see that. So at the same time, look at history and look at the biblical history, redemptive history of Scripture. You see God's attribute being on display, uh, being on display, okay, to help us in times of our trials, okay. Um, with that, okay. Are you guys able to hear me? Are you guys still able to hear me? Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. Okay, for a moment there it says, I have an announcement saying, uh, your speaker is something, okay? Okay, I guess my speaker is not working, but my audio is okay. Uh, yay or nay? You guys can hear me? Down if you guys can hear me. Okay, let me see real quick. Okay, could you guys hear me? Okay, could you guys hear me? Okay, could you guys hear me? Uh, thumbs up if you guys can hear me. Okay, okay. So, I don't remember where we left off, but here we go on, okay? We need to trust in God by looking at biblical history of what God has done to see the Pacific, uh, specific uh, character of God. So that God is capable of helping. Let's go to point number two. I want to deal with point number two now is do not test the Lord. I want to deal with this because as we look at this psalm, we could easily say like, hey, uh, I struggle to believe in God because it says God's able to do all these things. But yet, how come this is not happening in my life? Okay, How come this is not happening in your life? Now again, let me make clear. There's a difference between capability versus God's actually will is always going to be fulfilled in this way in your life. Okay? Um, so in looking at point number two, I think important is when we read Psalm 91 in its context, it's never meant to be, it's never meant to say you will never undergo a trial, okay? This Psalm is not teaching us that in your life you'll never undergo trial, okay? Let's just even look at its context, okay? Uh, psalm 91 is not saying this. By the way, as I read more and more of the Psalm, I think it's very important to interpret it canonically. That is to say, this Psalm is placed with an intentional authorial intent. The Bible is still literature. And why is it placed next to this psalm? The verse before, the psalm before, and the psalm before. If you look at it canonically within its context, Psalms 91 is never meant to teach us 
that you will never undergo through trials, okay? So this is not a verse to say you will never have illness. This is not a verse of prosperity gospel. Say if you follow God, you'll be rich. Your life will be wonderful. You'll have a nice yacht and, and, and you know, name it and you claim it and you blab it and you grab it. No, this is not what this psalm is teaching, okay? If you look in the context, look with me even the psalm before. In Psalms 90 verse 15, let's turn to Psalms 90 verse 15, okay? Psalms 90 verse 15. Psalms 90 verse 15. It says, Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us, and the years we have seen evil. Okay? Psalms 90 in the way of context, okay, is uh, if you look in, if you, uh, by the way, I still encourage you guys to have a physical Bible. Okay? So it's easier to still follow along. Um, if you look at your Bible, uh, right above Psalm 90, it actually says book 4. Did you guys all see that? Psalm is actually five books. It's a collection of five books. Maybe the best way to think about it is Psalm is actually, maybe the best way to think about it is each book in the Psalm is like an album. And you guys ever seen like some musician, they have like what, the complete works of, I don't know, Johnny Cash or something like that, right? Or Elvis Presley, okay? So it collects all the album, okay? That's what it is. Now, unfortunately today, we don't have the lyrics, but these were originally songs. Now, in the context of the flow of the book of Psalms, Psalms 1 is about God trying to establish David as king. They're trying to establish David as king. Then Psalms 2 is about, okay, now he's celebrating. God has established his ability to be king and even eventually be a, a savior uh, comes out of that, okay? Then Psalm 3, when you read Psalm, if you ever go through, by the way, trials in your life, the best book to read is probably Psalm uh, book 3 and 4 because in Psalm uh, book 3, it's admitting, hey, everything in the world is not perfect. Just like David when he was reigning, there was all kinds of things. There was turmoil, there was rebellion, he sinned, he falls short. And you see in book 3, he's crying out to God. And when book 4 begins, book 4 is going to be emphasizing a lot of, hey, you know what? Despite all these trials, uh, nuanced views, yes, we will struggle. We will still sing like in the first book and second book. We also know evil and bad things happen. And we also ourselves are evil. And there's struggle in the Christian life and the believer's life, which is book three. But book four is saying, you know what? God is still king, okay? Because in Psalms 92 to 100, it's emphasizing Yahweh is still king. He's still ruling. But if you look at Psalm 90, you might say, why is it begin with, uh, with this by Moses, okay? Most Psalm is written by who? David or David, okay? But why Moses is trying to say this theme about going through trials and still trusting in God, this is nothing new. It's not just only with David. It goes back to the first writer. Well, uh, first writer in our canon of scripture. Okay, uh, first one I think is Job. But first one in, in our order of scripture is Moses. He wrote the book of Genesis, all of this. And yet he says in Psalm 90, he's admitting he's got his freedom from exile. God has rescued them very miraculously. But that doesn't mean life will get easy. And in Psalm 90 verses 14, what does he say? Uh, uh, correction, verses 15, he admitted that, hey, make us glad according to the days you afflicted us, that we will have afflictions, we will have trials, we will have difficulties. Even after God rescued them from Egypt, that does not mean life is then a roller coaster after that. And now you might say, how does Psalm 90 connect with Psalm 91? I think there is a connection. By the way, you cannot interpret Psalm 91 without knowing the flow of Psalm 90 that introduces this book. We'll talk about that even more in our third point, okay? But here, I want to see that, number one, you should see in the context. Psalms 91 is saying, not saying you should, you will never suffer in your life. Turn with me also as well to Psalm 44, verse 2. Okay, let's turn with me to Psalm 44, verse 2. Okay, uh, Psalm 44, verses 2. Okay, 
Psalm 44 verses 2 uh, with that. Uh, by the way, Jen, uh, I saw you asked a question about uh, why I was disabled. We're doing it because earlier there was a lot of background noise uh, for everyone, uh, for, for the purpose of the service. I don't know if you can hear me uh, with that, okay? Uh, Psalm 44, um, uh, Psalm 44 verses 2. If you guys could turn uh, to Psalm 44 verses 2. As you read this, if you know your Old Testament, New Testament, this psalm might sound familiar to something you've heard from before, okay? Uh, psalm 44, verses 2. Psalm 44, verses 2. This is what it says. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflict the people. Then you spread them abroad. Oh, actually, this is not the uh, psalm of Hold up. Okay, this is not this. Actually, if you turn with me to um, turn with me to Romans eight, uh, Romans eight thirty six. Romans eight thirty six is going to be quoting f- uh, uh, from the psalm. I don't have the psalm on hand right now. Uh, quoting from the psalm, the reality that even when the book of Psalm it says that a Christian life we will go through trials and suffering. Okay, Romans chapter eight verses thirty six. Romans 8.36 It says, Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Okay? And this is quoting here from the book of Psalm. Okay? It's quoting here from the book of Psalm showing us that, you know what? It's reality. Not just only Old Testament believers will suffer. New Testament believers will suffer. Nancy, you have the... 22. Psalms 22? 44.22 Oh, Psalms 44.22 Not verse 2, Okay? I was quoting from Psalm 42, verses 22, okay? And in Romans, is quoting, uh, Paul is quoting to say, hey, as believers, as a messenger of God, as you tell other people, sometimes you will suffer. And he's quoting from the Old Testament to say, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. This is a truth in Old Testament and New Testament reality, okay? Now, is God deliver, able to deliver us this time? Is there a time where God fulfills Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 91 in your life? Yes. It'll be to look back in deliverance. But the, sometimes miraculous and powerful ways you say, whoa, this is surely the hands of God. But sometimes also as well, you might have another purpose of why you go through things, okay? So if you guys could turn back with me to Psalm 91. Again, I want to look at there's passages in this context, in the flow even with the book of Psalm. Does not mean you'll never undergo through trial. Second point you need to remember in interpreting Psalm 91, God's will might not be to remove certain trials. God's uh, it might be His will not to remove certain trials in your life in order for you to grow. In order for you to grow uh, as a believer, okay? Uh, also as well, okay? So the other point to realize is God doesn't always help us the way we expect, okay? Uh, God doesn't always help us the way we'd expect. Um, how many times in your life have you guys ever had this in my own prayer? I say, dear God, uh, please help me with X, Y, or Z. And then God does A, B, C instead. And it's like, oh, that's not what I planned. But then you look back in hindsight and say, okay, there's a reason why he had this. And sometimes we don't know fully the reason until many years later. And sometimes we don't know it at all until we go to heaven in eternity. And by the way, God's word says he doesn't have to tell us. But there's a reason he accomplished everything still. And we, sometimes by God's grace, we see a little perspective of why he uh, doesn't deliver us or he answers in a way that we don't expect. I think there's also a question that some of these psalms is the issue of timing of when it is fulfilled, okay? Um, you know, all these points, you might say, okay, Jimmy, give me some verses. You're just listening to all these things. Turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, 
verses 5 to 7. We're going to turn here because in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, we actually see Psalms 91 appearing in the New Testament. And I think when you see its appearance, it establishes the point that I'm trying to make, is that God sometimes allow us to go through uh, trials. Uh, God allows us to go through trials. And we should not take Psalm 91 to say we should never, ever suffer, okay? But in light of everything I said earlier in this uh, in its context, there's times that we suffer, there's times that we go through hardship, and it's God's will, and yet sometimes, yes, God answer and fulfill moments in our life, moments of different verses in Psalms 91, but nevertheless, I think when you look in its use, okay, of Psalm 91, I think in Matthew, if you guys turn now with me, we're looking to Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, to help us see that we can misapply this psalm to think, oh, therefore, we could do things that are unwise, Okay, that is harmful and God will help us no matter what. Okay, please do not take this verse. Okay, and I'm being very serious here now. Okay, because um, I think I think because of this virus, people stay at home, people are staying online more. In some of the groups that I moderate for Facebook, uh, you know, apologetics and theology group, I don't know why people are some like a little bit more argumentative than normal. Okay, uh, yesterday someone asked a question and I answered this guy's question, and then he said, Oh, you don't trust in God, and I was like, Whoa. And for half a second, I realized, okay, I have to make a decision. Should I be pastoral or should I be polemical, right? Like being a jerk is what I'm saying. And I realized, oh, this is time to be pastoral, okay? Uh, in light of this, please do not look at Psalm 91 and say, oh, I trust in God and I'm not going to wash my hand. Is that a right application of Psalms 91? We say Psalms 91 verses 5 says, oh, pestilence will not touch me and therefore I won't trust, touch, uh, wash my hands. If you do that, well, I'm not going to shake your hand, right? If there's something wrong. That's a misapplication. Scripture, okay. So what I'm going to, when we turn here to Matthew chapter four verses five to seven, is I want to make this point that you could misapply Psalm ninety-one and say, oh, therefore you're gonna uh, live this verse and say, live your life righteously. And I would say, if you do that, you are testing the Lord. Let me read Matthew chapter four verses five to seven. Let me say this again: Matthew chapter four verses five to seven. Okay. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, Looking at this verse, in the context, the devil is tempting Satan. He's tempting him in various ways. And in this context, we know he uses the Bible. Uh, I know that I say this all the time. The, Satan is very smart. He's very, very wise. Uh, I think he knows Scripture a lot more than you and I. More than any professor I would ever know. But I would never trust him as a what? As a Bible pastor and as a Bible preacher or professor. Because why? He always trusts the Scripture. If you look at verses 5, he's, he wants Jesus, what does he want to do? He wants Jesus to go on a pinnacle of the temple and jump off. In other words, he wants Jesus to commit what? The sin of ending his life, suicide, okay? He wants an end. And by the way, I also think the Bible teaches that um, Satan wants to kill Jesus many times in his life. Early on when he was born, right? He wanted to get rid of him through who? Harold. We know Satan was behind us because in the book of Revelation chapter 12, we see a spiritual bird's eye view that behind uh, the, the, um, the evil forces trying to kill the woman with child, which the child is Jesus, 
we know there's Satan behind it, okay? Behind it all along, okay? Yet, I think if he kills him, I think the reason why it's not to atone for our sin is to, I think the Bible teaches what is the Reformed Doctrine of Active Obedience. That Christ has to live out everything righteously. He cannot just be a, just original state of innocence. That's it. He needs to be tempted and need to be tested in order to uh, 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 attribute or give to us um, his active obedience as credit for us to redeem us from our sin. Okay? It's not enough just to use Christ as just God, but he also needs actively in his humanity also live out to die for us. And here, he wants, the devil wants Jesus to jump out of the holy city in the pinnacle of the temple, which would have been over 450 feet for his humanity to die. Okay? But in order to tempt it, notice he has to abuse a verse. In verses 6, he even challenged him his identity, saying, hey, if you're the son of God, what does he say? Throw yourself down. And if you notice here very carefully, he quotes an Old Testament verse. This Old Testament verse is, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands, in verse 6, their hand will bear you up so that, quote, you will not strike your foot against a stone. When you look at the verse, you will not set your foot to strike against a stone. That's actually a quotation from Psalm 91, verses 12. Okay, He's saying, you know what? If you, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, if you're really the Messiah, guess what? You will not have your feet, if you jump off the cliff, your feet will not touch hit the stone. You'll be okay. Because that's a that's a promise of Psalm 91 verses 6. Okay? Also, if you look before that, it says, uh, Satan even says that, hey, his angels, he will command his angels concerning you, that they will bear you up, that they will lift you up. This portion, this portion of verses 6 is also a quotation from Psalm 91. Specifically, Psalms 91 verses 11. So Satan is using verses 11 and verses 12 of Psalm 91 to make the argument, you know what, Jesus, you could be reckless. You could go and hurt yourself and you'll be okay. And what does Jesus respond? Does Jesus respond say, oh yeah, scripture, there's a promise and therefore I'm going to do this. I could be reckless and I need to just trust in God. We cannot use verses uh, for our irrationality, for our stupidity. And then uh, sanctify, uh, baptize it, sprinkle a little bit of Christianese and a little bit of water and say, oh, therefore, we could do whatever we want. No, look at what Jesus says. His interpretation as this is what? You are testing God. You're not truly trusting in God. I think as much as we believe in God's sovereignty, as much as we believe in God's sovereignty, we believe in human responsibility also as well. Notice the response of Jesus in verses 7. He also quotes, by the way, as Satan twists a verse, he also, Jesus quotes a Bible verse in his context and says what? You should not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay? So do not use this verse to justify sin. Okay? Or, or, or irrationality or lack of wisdom. Okay? Do not use Psalm 91 says, Oh, pestilence will never reach me and don't ever wash your hands. Okay? Uh, that is not the appropriate verse. In fact, Jesus would say, you know what you're doing? Is you are testing God, okay? There's a human responsibility for us to be live as wise as possible. And that's also a blessing. God has given us wisdom also as well. And the joy of a will. Of course, our will is God working behind us. But a will, we have real, we're not little mini robots, okay? Uh, or little, we're not just, uh, we call it uh, puppets, okay? We, God has given us this gift wisdom and in light of that we should not test God okay so point number two to do not test the Lord so as application yes we trust in God uh, we know that this doesn't mean therefore all your life will be well but eventually one of the greatest way we could trust in God 
is by not putting God to the test and also say whatever your will is in light of all the my responsibility I've done I'll leave the result up of God okay the means we trust in God's means we trust what God's word says to be wise to do things biblically to not sin to pursue holiness to pursue godliness and pursue love but the results we always trust in God okay with the result of what happens in light of God's given means we also trust in God given results also as well and that's not easy but I think a mature interpretation of Psalms 91 is that by the way if you interpret Psalm 91 says you will never have any trials in your life you'll never even be hurt you're going your interpretation is more in line with Satan than that of what Jesus Christ okay than that in light of Jesus Christ if you guys could turn back with me to Psalms 91 I want to make a point. I just want to look again in verses 12. I want to make this point. Uh, we turn back to Psalms 91. Um, remember how I said like sometimes it's an issue of timing when God delivers us, okay? Uh, when God delivers us. I know it's 1230, but uh, you know, uh, it'll give me a few more minutes. We start a bit later, okay? Uh, Psalms 91, let's go back on verse 12. Sometimes the issue of fulfillment. If you know Psalms 91, verses 12 says, it says, you will not... Do not strike your feet against a stone, that your feet will be protected. And you might say, oh, Jesus Christ, this is a promise for Jesus Christ. But then if you look at Psalms 118, we're not going to turn here. Psalms 118 verse 24 even says, hey, Jesus Christ, the stone also is what, there's suffering with the stone. And I think stone is, the word Eben is also a prophecy of the Messiah. That's one of the title of the Messiah, going back to Genesis 49. But that doesn't mean you'll not suffer, okay? So let's go now to the third point. If you guys can, uh, turn with me to the third point now, okay? Uh, third point is worship Christ whom this psalm is about, okay? I'm going to make this point um, that when we look at Psalms 91, this psalm is actually, I don't think it's primarily about us. I actually don't think Psalms 91 is primarily about us. I actually think Psalms 91, in its canonical flow, in its interpretation according to its context, is actually talking about the Messiah. Okay, Psalms 91, I think, is primarily talking about the Messiah. My argument first begins with the observation, if you look at verses 3, actually, let's look with me in verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, let's pay attention to the pronouns, okay? Let's pay attention to pronouns, okay? Notice in Psalms 91, uh, in Psalms 91, and paying attention to the pronouns, the first pronoun we see in our English is probably he, okay? Uh, third person, masculine, singular, okay? And I think this is, uh, well, it's interesting. We ask who's this person referring to, okay? Then in verses 2, it, notice this, uh, there's another pronoun that we see, I, okay? First person, Common singular. Common, what do you mean by that? It could be male or female uh, that's speaking, okay? Uh, and this person is saying, I will trust in God. But if you look at verses 3 to 13, you'll notice the pronoun is you, okay? Which is a second person pronoun. I know in English, uh, our English uh, pronoun could be kind of vague. Whose is you, okay? Um, this is where if my version, I know I'm reading from, most of you guys read New American Standard Bible. If I have a New American Southern Bible, Okay, if I have New American Southern, you'll sometimes see there is you and you all. Okay, Southerners, I love how they say what? You all, saying what? More than one you, okay? When you look at verses 3 to 13, and paying careful attention to the Hebrew uh, um, 
uh, Hebrew um, verses. What I think you see going on here in Psalm 91 verses 3 to 13 is the you here is second person uh, masculine singular. Okay, so this is not talking about a female. This is talking about not a group of people, the church or Israel or any of that thing. This is talking about one individual. So I want to make this observation that I actually think this is very interesting. Why all of a sudden it switch to a second person singular, okay? Even though Psalms 90 earlier is talking about Moses, talking about nations, everything else. I actually think this, there's a reason why is I think this is referring to only one individual that is primarily, keyword is primarily uh, for in its original context, okay? Um, but I think we see a little bit of that earlier when you look at earlier in Matthew chapter 4 verses 5. You guys remember that? G, uh, Satan knows this verse enough to say that this is referring to who? If you look uh, with me in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5. Uh, verses 5, actually, remember uh, Satan is up there. And in verses 6, I'm going to read this real quick, what Satan says to Jesus. And said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Let me stop here real quick. His temptation is to attack Jesus' own identity. Saying, you know what? If you're the Son of God, this verse is true of you. What I'm trying to say is this. The singular, the second person singular, I think is actually referring to the Messiah, to the Son of God. Now, Satan doesn't get everything right. He's going to twist the scripture. But I think Satan got this part right, that this is, he knows, uh, in obeying the rule of grammatical, historical, syntactical, contextual uh, um, interpretation, Psalms 91 is talking about Jesus. But don't take Satan's word for it, okay? Don't take Satan's word for it, okay? But I want to show at least there's someone that's out there that noticed this observation. But don't take Satan's word out of this. Look with me also early in Psalms 90, okay? Look with me early in Psalms 90. Psalms 90 is the psalm right before this verse. This is written by Moses. And in the end of Psalms 90, he's saying, Oh, we've, you know, human life is hard. You know, we've sinned. You know, the longer we should live is like 70 years if it's good, 80 years if we have strength, right? And then in light of all this, we know that God judges sin. God is angry with sin. And then in verses 13, he starts saying, asking really God for, for grace, okay? Uh, uh, you know, saying, do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servant, okay? Satisfy. So show your grace, show your loving kindness. All of this is going on. And, and don't be, you know, don't afflict us, right? Make us be glad in verses 15. I'm summarizing here. Verses 17, he's asking God, let your work appear to your servant. Notice the word work is singular. All his life, he's seen many works. What are some of the works? The 10 plagues, right? Um, God uh, bringing them out of Egypt, departing the Red Sea. But the word here is work, singular. Now, Moses has also written the first five books of the Bible. I don't have time to go over this. If you guys really want, we've gone, I think, for six or seven uh, sessions in the past when we surveyed the whole Old Testament. We went over for six or seven sessions looking at the first five books. And one, our observation, if you go into sermon audio, we even made the observation that Moses already knew about the Messiah. He's already making prophecies of this. So I think when he says singular work, I think he's talking about the work of the Messiah, of the Messiah's work here. And it says, Let the favor of the Lord your God uh, be upon us and conform us to the work of our hands. Yes, conform the work of our hands. He's saying, show us your work. We've seen a lifetime of work, yes, but we're looking for the work of God coming back, the Messiah as King, right? Genesis 3.15 predicted that the Messiah will be one day be crushed, right? One day he will be bruised in his knees and he will crush the work of Satan. But then look back with me. He's looking for the work and Psalms 91 is now saying, hey, this is the work. By the way, you, Psalms 90 and 91 is connected. Look at verses 1. It says, Lord, you have 
been our dwelling place in all generation, before the mountains were born. Okay? And verses, Psalms 90 verses 1 connects with Psalms 91 verse 1. Because in verses 1, it says of 91, Psalms 91 verse 1 now, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Does that look very similar theme of Psalms 90 and also Psalms 91? Yeah, there's a connection in the sense that we, God is our what? Dwelling place. We can find shelter in God. Whereas in Psalms 90, is this for the, corporately the nation and Moses' experience? Now, remember Psalms 91 just ended in saying, Hey, you know what? Show us the work of God. Show us Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 where the Messiah, will be, His feet will be crushed, uh, uh, pierced. But yet also as well what? Satan being crushed also as well. Show us the vi- victory of your work, of victory conquering Satan. Look with me also in light of Psalms uh, 90 verses 13 to 17. With that as a context and seeing that these verses do interconnect. That the editor David um, is doing this very intentionally to put its placement next to each other for a reason, for an authorial intent or an editorial intention to show us the Messiah. Then, if you, in light of this, look with me in verses 13, Psalms 91, verse 13. You will, tre- by the way, you again is singular. You will tread upon the lions and cobra, the lion serp, uh, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample down. You know what I think this is saying here. This verse, don't please do not read this verse and go to your neighborhood zoo, LA Zoo, San Diego Zoo, and go jump up uh, the protection and then go and find a lion and say, hey, I'm going to win over you. You will not hurt me. Please do not read this verse and go to your, your neighborhood pet store, find a cobra and step on it and think you will not be bitten and not be hurt. This is not what it's talking about. It's not talking about you in terms of us today believers. This is talking about the singular you. Is there someone in the scripture that says that he will trample upon the serpent? Yeah. Genesis 3.15. By the way, Psalms 90 is written by Moses. It already tells us this above our English verse 1. So if you know reading Psalms in its contextual flow, you would think echoing right away, trampling, animal, beast, controlling over, uh, above that, trampling all that. You would think of Genesis 15. Where the Messiah will be a, the one individual seed will be able to conquer over Satan by also stepping over and crushing them also as well. So in light of all this, what I'm trying to say is this: is Psalms 91 is mainly about who? Jesus Christ. But then the question might be: Is this? You might say, "Wait, is this true of Jesus?" I would say yes. But at the same time, there's some of these things are not yet fulfilled yet, okay? Some of these things will be fulfilled in His second coming, okay? In His second coming, He will fulfill all of these things. Because with Jesus Christ, in li- with Jesus Christ, okay? With Jesus Christ in His own life, He did not just say, oh, I will just be, what? I will not just have any sickness. I will not go through any uh, trials or any of those things, Okay? Did the angels rescued him in his life? Now the angels could have capa- have the capability of rescuing him, but the angels did not rescue him when uh, when when Judas and the devil allowed all these evil people to go with a group of soldiers to capture him in a night while he was praying. Turn with me to look again, actually look with me in verses uh, eleven first. It says, "For he will give his angel charge concerning you." This is not you and I. This is you, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, 
to guard you in all your ways. And turn now with me to Matthew 26, verses 53. Matthew 26, verse 53, okay? Let's turn to Matthew 26, verse 53. Matthew 26, verse 53. This is what Matthew 26, verses 53 says, okay? Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put in my disposal more than twelve legions? This is the night where he was captured, right? And remember, um, Peter was trying to protect him. He basically drew out a sword in verses 51 and cut the ear, uh, one of the ears of the slave of the high, high, um, high priest, okay? So he's doing something. And Jesus says in verse 52, hey, put your sword back, you know? And he tells him the truth. You know what? I could have 12 legions of angels. Legion in a Roman unit is about, um, about uh, what do you call it? It's about five to six thousand. Okay, usually under man. Okay, the, the, I think the best way to think of it is this is the Marine Corps, uh, in the sense that usually the average uh, soldiers that occupy area is more regional troops, uh, native troops. They're not necessarily Roman citizens or, or Roman ethnicity or Italian ethnicity. But when the Roman legion appears in your neighborhood, that means your that means your area has been rebelling. Okay, that means there's martial law. Okay, that means legions are there to crush and destroy. They're like the stormtroopers. Of their day and age, okay? When the legions show up, man, you better hide, okay? So here, Jesus is saying, you know what? I could have 12 legions. And by the way, is that biblical? Yeah. Do we see, th- is, is Jesus just saying this just to say it? Or, or is there biblical precedence? Yeah, Psalms 91. What we saw earlier. The angels will be protecting him. But yet, with the angels, and this moment when Jesus Christ, on the night that he's about to die, did the angels come and intercede and protected him? No, okay? The angels did not stop, went to protect him. The angels were probably just as confused, thinking, what is going on? All their hearts, they probably wanted to be there. And yet, Jesus said, no, why? Because it's the will of God the Father. And it's the will of God the Father, why? So that Jesus Christ would die on the cross, would suffer on the cross for you and I and for our sins, would suffer so that we would be able to be saved. Now, even as when you, with that in light, let's read Psalms 91 in a very different way, in a perhaps a deeper and richer way. Turn with me Psalms 91, and look with me in the lines, uh, uh, in the line uh, of verse six of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, okay, or of the destruction that lay waste at noon. Remember Christ at noontime. What happened? The world tar- turned into darkness. And yet in all of this, he will still trust. This you here, this Messiah Jesus, will still trust in God the Father. Okay? In light of all this, even in all of this, he will not be afraid. He will face it fully with the terrors of night to bear our sin. Okay? So that when you look in verses 14, when he says, delivering me, did the God the Father deliver Jesus? I would say yes and no. No, in the sense that he did not deliver him, freeing him from death on the cross. But did he resurrect him again after he died for our sins? Yes. Because it says here, I'll deliver him. I'll set him on high, higher than anything we could have ever imagined, than any hilltop in Jerusalem, will send him ascending to the right hand of God the Father, right? It says in verses 15, he will call upon me and I will answer. I'll be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and I will honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. In order for our salvation to happen, what Jesus Christ has done for us is that he died for us 
And God the Father rescued him, lifted him on the third day, so that you and I will be rescued. And if you look at Psalms 91 in its canon, canonical context, I think that changes the way we interpret this, right? We won't be looking at this verse superficially and say, oh, we would never go through trial. If, if there's any one person that could read this verse and say, hey, Jesus Christ, hey, God the Father, I deserve to not have any pestilence. I deserve to not ever de- be died or any stuff. If there's any one person that deserves it more than you and I, it's Jesus Christ. But yet He died for us. He rescued us. So that one day, this psalm will be true. We will one day, yes, as it says here, we will have a long life. This verse will be true, all fulfilled one day in the millennial kingdom and the state of eternity. When we go to heaven and we come back down on a new heaven and new earth. This will be fulfilled, but the first person that must fulfill this is Jesus Christ, the singular you who came and died for us so that we will be what? Saved. So in light of all this, I think there's a deeper, richer aspect application here is not to say you will never have bad thing happen in your life, but the richer application is to say, wow, Jesus, you're a wonderful Savior. All these rights and prerogatives and the privilege you had, you forgo this to die and to save and to be saved. To be saved from my sins so that I could be drawn closer to God. So that I can now trust in God even in my times of darkness, even find you as my refuge. Now, I know there's a lot of times when we suffer, we don't know why. We don't know why, okay? I know some people uh, with this, read this psalm, you know, and by the way, just because you're a Christian don't mean you will not get coronavirus. Some of you guys are in the medical profession. Uh, on my blog, there's someone that even messaged me a few weeks ago, and my wife and I were praying that um, the husband is a respiratory therapist, and guess what happened? One of the person in the hospital has coronavirus. And they don't know if they have it, so they have to self-quarantine themselves, her and her family, okay? That does not, you read this in, in light of this, that means there is a risk. But I also believe, um, I also believe, at least when I was younger, even when you are life at risk, this is sometimes where you are most closer to God. Reading this psalm, even when we were in Iraq, yes, I was comforted, but my comfort was not a superficial reading, say, bad things will never happen to me. But realizing, whoa, my Savior, could have exercised these privileges. He foregold this to die for me so that we would see this fulfillment one day in the new heaven and a new earth for every believer, everyone who have trusted in God as refuge. Let's close first in a time of prayer and then we would uh, un, um, unmute everyone for a time of prayer. Uh, okay, let's pray.